this year. I'm turning 40 in August. Yeah, sounds old, actually. Uh, people have been asking me whether I'm going to be celebrating my birthday. Uh, the answer is no. Not right now, at least. It might change my mind a few months later. Uh, but I'm not particularly embracing the moment at this stage. But as I thought about the fact that I'm turning 40, it uh, made me think about my life and what I've achieved and so forth. You know, you start to reminisce the old times. Maybe that's a sign of being old. <laughs> but, you know, as I look back at my life, at the highs and at the lows, you see God's hand in so many elements of it. And I'm so thankful to the Lord and where he's brought me in my faith and love for him. And as I talk about this, I wonder for you, have you had moments of just perhaps looking back in the past, even just over the last month or even a week? Can you trace how the Lord has been moving and working in your life? Have you been, how have you been responding to God in those moments and in the current moments now as you look back? Well, today, as we unpack God's words from the book of Psalm, chapter 145, which is the very last psalm where the authorship's attributed to King David, I want to explore with you King David's response through the highs and the lows of his life. And I hope to encourage you in how you might respond as you look back at God's work in your own life. So let's read from Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his work, works. The Lord upholds all who are failing, falling, and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth 
will sing, speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Today I've titled my sermon, Great is the Lord. And today I've just got two points. First point is the context of King David's life. And the second point, which I'll probably be there for the longest time today, is five gold nuggets of praise to God. So why don't we jump straight into my first point, the context of King David's life. I think to better understand this Psalm 145, or in fact, any of the Psalms written by King David, you need to understand the context of King David's life. You see, King David, he was the son of Jesse. He was the youngest son of eight from the tribe of Judah. Now, what we know of David is that he was ruddy, which means he had a healthy red-colored face. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And although good-looking, my guess is that he was small in height and stature, definitely one with a physique not worthy, at least in human appearance, to be king, let alone king of God's chosen people of Israel. But we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that this young boy, he's anointed by God's prophet Samuel to be the future king of Israel. Now let's hold that thought for a moment. Like, can you imagine being chosen by God to be Israel's king? You know, what would be going through your mind at this stage? If you're thinking about highlights of your life, surely this must be one of the highlights. Cut to the next scene in 1 Samuel 17. We see the people of Israel in battle with the Philistines. The Philistines are encamped on your land. One side of the mountain, the mighty army of the Philistines. The other side of the mountain, you have the army of Israel. And in the middle here in this valley, they are ready to battle. And out comes the champion from the Philistine army. His name is Goliath. He's a giant. It says that he is six cubits and a span. That's equal to 3.5 meters tall. That's like, you know, three times Dougie's height or something like that. <laughs> a two and a half. Sorry, bro. But he's tall. He's a giant. He's big. And he comes out and he calls for a 1v1 battle. And all the Israelites are dismayed. They're distraught. But here comes David with a sling and five rocks. And in verse 45, he says to Goliath, Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And he runs to the battle line, gets one of the rocks, And he slings one and smack on Goliath's forehead. Clean headshot, dead with one hit. Now let's hold that thought for a moment. What would be going through his mind at this stage? Again, if we're talking about highlights of your life, surely that must be a highlight. But David's life wasn't all about heroics and highlights and triumphs. In 1 Samuel 18, King Saul is now jealous of all the achievements of David. People sing that King Saul struck down thousands, but David, ten thousands. So Saul, in his jealousy, he hurls two spears at David. David evades both. 
but the king wants him dead. David eventually runs away. But can you imagine being chased by the king of your country, let alone the country that you're a citizen of? Some scholars indicate he was on the run for about 13 years. Can you imagine being on the run from your king for 13 years? What would be going through his mind at this stage? If you're thinking about lowlights in your life, surely this must be one of them. Here's another one we're all too familiar with, and this is the last one I'll talk about. King Saul is dead. King David, he is the king of Israel. And this incident, it happened one afternoon. He was walking on the rooftops of his palace when below he saw a beautiful woman who we all know as Bathsheba, who was married to a man named Uriah. Bathsheba, she was bathing. And King David inquires of her and eventually brings her into his room while Uriah, her husband, is in the battle lines. King David eventually lays with her. She becomes pregnant. And to cover this whole mess, King David orders Uriah to be sent to the front lines of the battle where eventually he dies. King David, he was sexually immoral, a murderer, and the baby boy would eventually, that was born, would eventually die. Now again, what would be going through his mind at this stage? If you're thinking about lowlights in your life, surely this must be one of them. But there are more highlights and lowlights of David's life I can talk about. But as we look to this text, I want us to be able to relate. Because aren't all of our lives somewhat like this? We all have our highs and we all have our lows. Perhaps our highs have got to do with job promotions, the purchase of new property, your health is getting better, new relationships, newborn children, which are all great things. Or perhaps you have lowlights, you've lost your job, you're financially struggling, you feel alone, your family is a mess, you're chronically sick, you have hidden an unrepentant sin. But knowing all of this and knowing that maybe our lives are not much different to King David himself, how can we respond? If you've gone through the book of Psalms before, we see King David respond in various ways, in fact. In fact, he talked openly of his joys and his afflictions. And his response was either through prayer or he grieved, he spoke, taught or worshipped from within an honest experience. And today we see a response in Psalm 145 that comes from a heart of praise, a heart of worship, a heart to proclaim who God is. Perhaps you've been responding with a heart of praise already. Keep going. And perhaps this sermon might give you fuel to keep praising God. But if not, my hope is that this psalm would encourage you and inspire you to worship God in your highs and the lows of your life. And so on that note, King David gives us Examples, five examples, five different praise points. I'm going to call them my five nuggets of gold that we want to praise, uh, that we want the people of 
Sovereign Grace Parramatta to be thinking about as we praise him through our highs and lows. So gold nugget number one, praise God for his fame and glory. Praise God's fame and glory. Read with me verse 1 to 7 again. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Extol, bless, great, unsearchable, mighty acts, wondrous works, might, awesome deeds, greatness, fame, abundant goodness, righteousness. These are words used by King David in the first seven verses of Psalm 145. All these words are used to describe God's fame and glory. You see, when I read these words, they aren't words that, you know, you describe to your friends or your family members or leaders or your country, even your pastors, right? I haven't seen many people approach their pastor and say, I will extol you and bless you and praise your name forever and ever, oh, Pastor Riley, right? We don't do that. I'm sure he would have liked it, but uh, we don't do that because it's just weird. It's weird because these words have a level of reverence that surpasses what sinful people like us deserve. You see, King David knew who God was in comparison to who he was. Praising God's glory and fame, that means to declare that God is in a class by himself. He has infinite providence. He has infinite greatness and infinite worth. God's fame and glory is displayed through our declaration of him. So when King David says in verse 1, I will extol you, it means I will elevate you to a high place. It means to lift up. It means I will lift high the name of God and magnify his name. In verse 2, when it says every day I will bless you, it means to praise him with a personal affection. And we do that by bending our knee and to kneel down in order to express a blessing. It's to humble ourselves before God. It means, God, you're up there and I'm lowering down. And then it says, I will praise your name forever and ever. To praise means to radiate, to make bright, to shine forth, to boast, to brag about God. That's what we do when we sing, right? We sing as a means to radiate and proclaim, to shine forth the goodness and greatness of God. And his declaration of God and who he is has a duration. It's forever and ever. For David, his praising of God is forever. It has no end. And then he adds the and ever, which means he forbids 
he bans, he says no to any idea of praise other than to God alone. Only God will be praised in his life. And verse 3 sums it all up so well. He says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. This is a declaration of who God is and that's his greatness, that his greatness is unsearchable, it's unending. The ways we can praise God cannot be limited. It exceeds our very thoughts and our vocabulary. No matter how much we search and dig and find and try and meditate on God's greatness completely, we cannot. We will continually be surrounded with unknowable wonders which will baffle all our attempts to completely understand his greatness. You see, for King David, as he looks back into his life and his current circumstances, his response is praise and this praise is to God's glory, but it's also a personal one. He says, I will extol you. He says, my God and King, I will bless you and praise your name. It's personal. And church, this is important for King David. His personal relationship with God enables him to know not only about God, but to know of God. You see, it's easy for anyone to know about God. Go to the internet, search God, and you'll see many responses of what people think who God is. But you see, for King David, He's experienced firsthand God's greatness in his highs and lows of his life. It's real. And because he knows of God, his response is proclamation of his fame and glory. But not only is the praise of God meant to be a personal one, but it's meant to be a public one. As we read in verse 4, King David calls us to remind each other and teach of it to the next generation. Public praise of God's fame and glory is biblical. The only way we're going to praise God to the next generation is when we sitting here, the older generation, relay the message to the younger generation. Kids' work happening downstairs right now, it's a biblical mandate. But be clear, friends, not only are we called to teach them, but to teach them by praising him. Church, let's not be people who talk to our kids of God's greatness in a dull and uninterested way. King David, he calls us to declare it. Have authority and power in your tone. God parted the Red Sea's kids. Isn't that amazing? It says in verse 7, to pour forth the fame of God. You know, pouring forth, it means we can't contain it. There's plenty of it. It's constant. It's like saying, remember the time when God created the heavens and the earth by his voice? And when he flooded the world but saved righteous Noah by building an ark? How awesome is that? And when he blessed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? We just keep going, pouring forth that God is amazing. Verse 7 also says, sing aloud of his righteousness. And our churches, uh, we're pretty good at that. But 
Let us see to it that we praise God before our children and never make them think that his service is an unhappy one. Friends, in our generation, we too, right? We too have experienced God's greatness in our lives. So tell our kids, isn't God so great that in our sickness, look how God has sustained us in our goodness. Kids, let's praise God today because of dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank. As we look back at our highs and lows, how must we respond? Praising God for his fame and glory personally, but also publicly by teaching our kids to praise God. Gold nugget number two, praise God for his goodness. Praise God for his goodness. Read with me verse 8 to 10. It says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Now, anyone here sitting here fans of Korean barbecue? Sounds like yes for many. If you haven't tried it, you're missing out. You know, the marinated beef cooked on a hot plate. Uh, pork belly on top and eat it with kimchi. It's just, it's good. But you see, only those who've had a mouthful and tasted it can ever concur with me how good it is. See, I could recommend it to you, but until you've tried it, you'll never know the real quality of it. And in the same way, we've seen David say in Psalm 34, verse 8, another one of his, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he is good. Good. But I guess what does it mean when we speak of God's goodness, right? J.I. Packer, in his book called Knowing God, he says this, When the biblical writers call God good, they are thinking in general of all those moral qualities which prompt his people to call him perfect. And in particular, of the generosity which moves them to call him merciful and gracious and to speak of his love. You see, we see this example of God's goodness displayed in Exodus chapter 33. Moses is on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, and he asks God, God, that I might see your glory. And God responds in verse 19 like this. He says, I will make all my goodness. His goodness will pass before Moses and will proclaim before him his name, the Lord. God's goodness will pass before Moses. And so God passes before him. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, we get to understand what God's goodness is. God's goodness is this, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And King David in Psalm 145 verse 8 that we just read repeats God's goodness by declaring that God is gracious, meaning full of goodness and generosity. He treats his people with kindness. He treats his people with consideration for their situation and his righteous favour is always upon his people. You see, God's words, his purposes, his plans, his promises and gifts come to fruition, which all are examples of his grace towards us, his 
goodness towards us. Not only is his goodness displayed through his grace, but also he's merciful. In other words, he has compassion towards his people, to those suffering, to the weak, to the despondent, those who are struggling. God is merciful. He further shows his goodness towards us by being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This means that God has an incredible patient love, patient love towards sinners like us. This is God's innate nature, to turn away from his wrath towards sinful man and instead find repentance. We, find, we go to him in repentance. That's God's love for us, and that love is abounding, it says, Abounding, meaning it's limitless. It lasts. It perseveres. That God's love for us is abounding. And every time we come to him, he forgives us. You see, if his love wasn't abounding, every time we sin, his justice wrath would destroy us again and again. He abounds in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. This, again, is an example of God's goodness towards us. Perhaps for King David, he looks back at the 13 years he was running from King Saul and is reminded of God's goodness. Just like the people of Israel who wandered the deserts for 40 years and God reminded them of his goodness, of his grace, his mercy, how he was slow to anger and steadfast love. Perhaps King David is also praising God for those moments of the 13 years when God's goodness was displayed. So as you look back through your life, can you trace his goodness towards you, his grace, his mercy, his slow to anger and steadfast love represented in your own life? And how do we respond to his goodness? We praise him. We thank him and bless his name forever and ever. Gold nugget number three, praise God for his kingdom. Praise God for his kingdom. Read with me verse 11 to 13. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. When we think of praising God's kingdom, it's not talking about praising a location. It's not talking about let's praise God's heaven or earth, but rather we're thinking of praising God's sovereignty and reign. So when King David speaks of the glory of God's kingdom, it's actually calling the people to tell of God's glorious reign, that he has his hand over all things, that the glory of God, is glory, his kingdom is about his sovereign control over all things. You see, when we look at the most powerful people of this world, I don't know who the most powerful people of this world are to you, but... Let's just give you an example of President Biden himself. You know, even people like him, they are limited. 
They have a limited reign or control over people. They have limited control of wealth. But God in his kingdom, he reigns over all things, all angels, all men, all demons, all wealth on land, on sea and in the air. All things are in the palm of God's hands and belong to him. Not only is this, not only this, but the most powerful people, you know what? They need others. Now, President Biden, he needs his military. He needs his advisors. He needs his senators, his sponsors. He needs his people to pay taxes. He needs the commodity from other nations. And although they are rulers, they are still dependent. But God, in his kingdom, he conquers and governs all things. He is the subject of none because he needs nobody's, nobody's help or assistance. You see, in a moment, God can bring nothing into more than anything that we can ever fathom. That's God's kingdom. And God's kingdom, as it says in verse 13, it reigns forever. It's an everlasting kingdom. In fact, this verse, verse 13, is a verse repeated in Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. You see, during those times, the Babylonian kingdom was a superpower. But how do you topple such superpowers, right? Yet this kingdom, in fact, all kingdoms ruled by men, they come and go. King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God and says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation, just like what we read today. These kingdoms are there one day, but gone the next. Yet God sits on his throne of the universe and his rule governs all things forever. God is reigning over all things that are happening in your life. He doesn't need others to help him sort your problems. And he's not limited by time to accomplish what he will. He is 100% in control. Perhaps King David was aware of this too. He was the king of Israel. Perhaps he looks back in those moments as king and he's reminded that his kingdom is limited, but not God's kingdom. And so he praises God for it. So as you look back through your life, can you trace God's sovereign hand? Can you trace God's sovereign hand over the joys that you have in the gospel perhaps? Or his control over your life's difficult circumstances and situations? His reign over all the plans that you make each day? How do you respond to this? How do you respond to his kingdom? We respond by praising him. We respond by declaring it to others so that all might know the power of his kingdom. Gold nugget number four, praise God for his providence. Praise God for his providence. Read verse 14 to 16 with me. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and and satisfy the desire of every living thing. 
Now, just remember that we just spoke of God's sovereignty and reign and control, yet following this powerful image comes another incomplete contrast. Verses of God coming down, the almighty God that needs no one to come down to uphold those who are falling, the weak. And this verse reminds us that in our weakness, we cannot sustain ourselves. No, not at all. But those who rely on God are sustained by Him. And even the strongest foe cannot shake Him. But perhaps for those who are already feeling down and out, physically incapable, mentally unstable, spiritually downcast, or perhaps all three, God will raise them up, it says. There is no one but God alone who can uphold and lift us up in our weaknesses. God's providence is also upon all that we need, it says. Our daily bread. You know, just as little children look up to their parents in times of need and ask for help or food, we too, as God's children, look to Him who provides all things for us in due season. In His perfect timing, He will provide our daily needs. But above all, all the things that I've said, but of all that God provides for us each day, I think verse 16 is the greatest provision. It says you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Church, what is it that we truly desire every day? What is it that we need each day and can't live without? Is it food? Is it wealth? Is it fame? Is it health? Is it friends? What is it that which God provides with his open hands? That's God himself. Hands open wide. God's providence towards us for our daily needs, he does provide for them. But his greatest providence is to give us our greatest need, which is more of God. God is the primary function of our lives. The praise for his providence will come because of what, gives, what God gives to us, but our greatest praise will come because of what God is to us. So friends, whether our lives end up being joyous or peaceful, our lives contently provided, or even when God does not provide and care for us in ways we might expect in this life. Remember this, in his providence, he gives himself to you, a God who cares for you. Remember that you're helpless in yourself. Your cares are bigger than you. You are under pressure. You are vulnerable and you know it. You're burdened about matters you cannot control or fix. Life is hard. You feel crushed, careworn and threatened. Bring your cares to God, his providence. He is strong and good and will be your greatest portion. It is God that we need most. And I think King David knew this. He saw the people of Israel worn and torn, weary, dismayed and downcast from their battle with the Philistines and the might and the torment from Goliath, yet as he looks back in those moments, God used him. 
and showed the people of Israel that in battle, all they really needed was God, to put their trust in God who provides. And so in God's providence, he praises. David praises God. So as you look back through your life, can you trace God's providence? How do you respond to his providence? We respond by praising him. The voice of need will eventually become a voice of joy. The cry for help will become a shout of gratitude. And the talks of discontent becomes songs of praise of contentment because we have more of God and that's all we need. Last but definitely not least, gold nugget number five, praise God for his saving grace. Praise God for his saving grace. Read with me verse 17 to 19. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Now, if I've lost you or if you can't remember what I've spoken about for the last 30 minutes, snap out of it now. This is the one that I want you to remember. King David, he reminds us here that we are to praise and sing of God's saving grace towards his people. Now, anyone here classified themselves as righteous, you know, 100% just and pure, without wrong or fault? Probably not, right? In fact, God's words in Romans 3.23, it says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, in Romans 3.10, it says this, none is righteous, no, not one. But in fact, based on verse 17, where the psalmist says the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, this would need to mean that in our sin, us who are not righteous in the presence of God who is righteous must be condemned by him. It's the It's right that the wrath of God be poured onto us. That is the kind thing for God to do, right? But God, in his goodness towards us, remember in verse 8, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Rather than condemning us for what we deserve, what does God do? He intervenes and his righteousness It's displayed through his son, Jesus Christ. For King David, God's righteousness points to Christ. And for us here today, we look back at what Christ has done. You see, the righteous act of God, the punishment that should have been on us, was instead atoned on the cross through his son, Jesus And so as we read verse 18 again, the Lord is righteous, this righteousness revealed by his grace. It's it's the righteousness that's a gift to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.26 says this, Christ's death, it was to show God's 
righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's through Christ. How kind is God towards us? This saving grace are for those who call upon the name of the Lord, to all those who place themselves beneath the feet of the cross, to those who know their sinful state and know that they are in need of a saviour, to those who call out, Lord Jesus, my heart is failing, I'm falling, I'm bowed down, Lord, help me. For those who call on Jesus and say, Lord, I'm weak, strengthen me. For those who call on Jesus and say, Lord, I'm lost, can you find me, guide me. For those who call on the Lord and say, Lord, I am full of sin, deliver me, save me from my sinful state. To those who call on him and trust in this truth, he promises to save them. See, I think King David knew of God's saving grace. Perhaps as he looked back at the moments with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah and his son, when David fell on his face and wept and poured out his broken and contrite heart to God and God forgave him of his sins. So as you look back through your life, can you trace God's saving grace in your life? Perhaps some of you are here today hearing all this for the first time of a God that is full of glory and fame, a God that is good and praiseworthy, a God where his kingdom reigns, a God that provides all that we need, a God that is gracious, who saves those who believe in him. You've, you've heard all this today, but you haven't experienced any of this. Perhaps all this is new. Well, these truths are for you too. And perhaps today is the day, the very reason why God has inclined you to join us, to hear us online so that you might explore and consider and maybe put your faith in him so that you too might experience these truths and praise him for it. And if that's you, please don't leave before speaking to someone today. We want to tell you more and share the gospel truth with you. But for those who are here, who have already put their trust in the Lord, how are you responding to all of this? As you cast your mind back to the highs and the lows of your life, is your response like King David, a heart of praise to God? Perhaps you can't think of any moments where you can relate, but perhaps he's one that I want you to consider your own testimony. Last week we heard during our baptisms five great testimonies and all of them spoke of some of the points I've raised today. So friends, review your testimony. Isn't one of the reasons why you believe in God is because he revealed his fame and glory in your life? God convicted you through the word and enabled you to see a glimpse of who he is? Is in your conversion, in your conversion, didn't God reveal his goodness to you? Wasn't he gracious and merciful to you in your sin and death? He did not crush you, but instead was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
In your conversion, can you see his sovereignty and reign? And in that moment of conversion, how he enabled you to understand and experience the gospel truth. Or perhaps in your conversion, you experienced his merciful hand, his generous hand. In your struggles of life, did he pick you up? When the world was falling, was he there? Wasn't he there for you? Didn't he give give himself to you? And if not any of those, surely in your conversion, didn't he give you saving grace? How you were once dead in sin, but saved from the pits, and now crowned in righteousness and alive in Christ. Friends, isn't God worthy of praise? And so... If somebody demands of you, or even perhaps yourself question, is God to be praised in all my life? You can answer, yes, because Jesus Christ, he lived it and sealed it with his blood. And so my response today should be and will be just like King David as he ends this Psalm 145. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we praise your name. Lord, we exalt you. We declare that you are great. How great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And Father, we thank you that through your words that we can declare your fame and glory. Lord, that we can declare that you are good. Lord, that we can declare your kingdom, your sovereign hand over all things. That we can declare your providence over our lives. That we can declare your saving grace. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, that we can do all these things because of the price you paid on the cross, that we might be here together to praise you for all that you've done in the highs and lows of our life, Lord. And may all glory and honour and praise go to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.